It really is good to be with you all. Uh, as Steve mentioned, it, it's it's always really significant for me uh, to come back to Tucson. Um, I haven't been back all that often uh, since the early 70s when I was at the U of A, um, before even Desert Springs existed uh, here. Town was half its size. Uh, most of these communities didn't exist here or anything, but it was that time that... Um, Jesus got a hold of my life, um, and just use that little pamphlet uh, to help me understand the gospel and uh, to, to repent, just kneel into my room and ask Jesus to come into my life and, and be my Savior, and then just do whatever he does with people when we when you do that. And I didn't know where that was going to lead or, or anything uh, like that. Um, Long story short, found myself in, in, in the ministry. We were been in Chicago now for 30-some years. I grew up in Michigan, uh, in Chicago for 30-some years. All right, there we go. <laughs> like it. And then my wife and I, daughter, have been involved in church planting over the course of those years. Um, and then and that's all we've really done for some 30 uh, number of, uh, of years uh, here. And then... Um, 17 years ago, took on the role that I'm in now, which is church planning coordinator for the PCA. So that means that uh, we oversee, I oversee with my wife Anne, the planting of churches throughout uh, Canada and uh, in the United States. And so we're in Phoenix and Tucson talking with guys uh, about all of that uh, kind of thing. And so again, I love every opportunity I, I can to be back here. Uh, my wife and I do this together. She's uh, my full-time partner uh, as an administrative assistant in this. And so her office is upstairs in the house and uh, mine is downstairs in the house. And uh, we text and email each other all the time. <laughs> We have one daughter, Liz, uh, who uh, is a, a graduate of Wheaton College. Uh, she's now a um, school teacher, music teacher, and Spanish teacher uh, in the uh, public school system uh, there. And uh, I think some of the, uh, the sense of how much church planting has defined our lives, and she is a teenager, we were driving um, near our home uh, there in Chicago, and she pointed to a building and said, so, so Dad, what is that building? They said, honey, what are you talking about? I said, that, that's a church. She said, oh, what did they use it for? And it just dawned on us that this kid had grown up and never been in a church building uh, before. Uh, it's just been storefronts, gymnasiums, uh, whatever the case might be. And so her response was, well, don't Christians just kind of gather wherever they can gather? It's like, well, yeah, but... Most eventually get a building, uh, or at least aspire to it or something like that. But we were just, we actually were kind of pleased with that because she understands, I think, what the nature of the body of Christ is. It doesn't matter, uh, where, where you meet, whether it's in the forests of Russia, the catacombs of Rome, uh, the cathedrals of Europe, uh, small buildings and, and, well, it doesn't matter. Believers gather in the name of Jesus, uh, because of the reality of the gospel, that he has saved us by his grace, that we come together into worshiping communities, uh, and to be engaged in mission uh, to the communities that are, are around us. And that is what drives us, and that is what has characterized our lives now for a number of years. Uh, and this morning, uh, and is, is kind of out of all of that, I wanted to share with you just really one verse 
uh, Philippians 1.27, and I think you have recently probably looked at this, from what I understand, uh, if you're in a series in Philippians here. Uh, just one verse, although I will be referring to verses before and after that, but I'm just going to look at the one verse uh, for right now. Uh, one of the reasons I set this before you is because it is our, uh, you probably don't know this actually, but it's our denominational verse. Uh, it's the verse that we at least at Mission North America have set before the denomination and said, this is what we want to have characterize all the congregations of the PCA. This is what we want to kind of categorize the presbyteries. This is what we want to characterize the, the denomination itself. And we hope the Church of Jesus Christ. And you could use any number of different verses to that end, but we've zeroed in uh, on this. Uh, verse 27 in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let's just take a moment to look to him in prayer. I'm just going to set this aside if I could. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we do gather in this place. And this room really is turned into a sanctuary because it's where we, your people, gather in the presence of you, our God. And we look to you, Father, and we lift our voices in unity and love, in praise and thanksgiving to you, our God. And you are worthy of such praise. But Lord, it is also our eager desire to hear you speak to us. So be with us as we look at this verse, as we look at it in its context of Philippians 1. Open up our hearts and minds to your word, Father, and speak truth words of life to us. Lord, whenever you speak, things happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. Speak to us, Lord, we pray this morning. Words of life and truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's so much in this one verse that I would love to get at today. Steve says I got like an hour and a half or so, so I'm gonna, <laughs> so I'm just gonna have to cut to the chase. There's a meal or something going on, and I uh, don't want to be rude about all of that. So I'll just kind of cut to the chase if I, if I can. And what one of the first things you'd notice in this verse uh, here, 127, is that it's it begins and ends, at least in terms of how the, the verses themselves are divided here, it begins and ends with a focus on the gospel. It's all about the gospel. The verse ends with the, uh, begins with a reference, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It ends with striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And one of the things we, we learn from that and from so many other texts, really, is that it is all about the gospel, the wonderful, amazing good news that, as we just read in, in, in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
It's the wonderful reality that God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's what Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15, that He delivered to us of first importance, that which He also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the Gospel. It is all about this Gospel. The fact that Jesus took upon Himself the wrath that you and I deserved. He took upon Himself the judgment that was intended for us. He stepped in front and he took the bullet that was intended for us. And this incredible good news is, is the reality that God, in looking at the world, uh, even as we were you know, praying in the pastoral prayer a few minutes ago, we, we see the world in all of its mess and all of its pain and all of its brokenness and all of its rebellion, all the things that are going on everywhere in our homes and our neighborhoods and schools and workplaces and our hearts and lives. Just, you look down at the world, it's a mess. When Jesus looked at the world, he stopped and we're told in Matthew 9, he looked at the, looked at the people and said they're distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Translated, y'all a mess. And what did he do? Well, he didn't send us a military leader. He didn't send us a teacher. Didn't send us a doctor. Didn't send us a politician, thank heavens. (laughs) But he did send us a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Because that goes to the root of the issue. He wasn't interested in just treating symptoms. He was going to the root of the issue, which is our separation from, our rebellion against, our disobedience to the Holy One, the Creator of all things. But the thing about the Gospel that is so significant, I think, is that when you read the Scriptures and you look at a passage like Romans 1.16, this is not just information that is supposed to be listened to, heard, and embraced on an intellectual basis. It is described over and over again as the power of God unto salvation. The power of God unto salvation. You know, you think about it, there are all sorts of different kinds of power uh, that, are, that we think about in this world. Um, you know, we talk about in government, it's all about assembling political power. Uh, in the business world, the phrase is money is power. Uh, in the scientific world, there's nothing more significant than nuclear power. Um, there's power in all sorts of, uh, of kinds, um, military, political, scientific, business world. In my day, it was power to the people. Uh, you hear phrases, black power. I mean, it just goes on and on with these references to power. And all of these have relevance, and all of them can serve the common good in many ways, but all of them in the hands of sinful men, money, Nuclear power, political power, whatever, they can all be used and have been used for great evil as well. I would set before you today that the most potent force in the universe, the greatest power that exists in the entire universe, is the power of the gospel. Because only the gospel, none of these other things, and no other resource that you can possibly think of can do it. Nothing else can save and change the human soul. 
only the gospel can save and change the human soul. It's the only way to make a real difference in this world. And frankly, that is why I, I believe I've ended up in the ministry. It's because I've come to believe that this really is the only hope in the world. And I believe it from biblical testimony, historical testimony, and personal testimony. I believe that it's the only hope for this world when I look at the scriptures and I see people like Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, who is a corrupt business leader, a corrupt government official, a tax collector, using the power of Rome not only to collect taxes from the people, but to make his own living. Because using the power of Rome, the military power of Rome, he could then not only collect their taxes, but collect whatever else he wanted to have whatever kind of lifestyle he wanted to have. As a result, he would be one of the most, the most hated people by, by the Jews. It wasn't just that they hated the Romans. What they really hated is one of their own who had, was a traitor to them and who was living off of them as a parasite and oppressing them. This was this man, a corrupt government and business leader until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, his life was changed. And we're told that he not only repented and believed and was saved, but he said, I will restore to everyone not only what I took from them, but fourfold what I took from them. He became a man of remarkable generosity and love. If we're going to see real change in the government sector, in the business world or whatever, it's going to come from people who have come to know Jesus. I look at people like the garrison demoniac. Here's a man in the grips of evil, in the grips of sin and evil. And he's terrorizing the whole countryside. He's uncontrollable, bringing fear to everyone until he meets Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, he's set free. And he has life. And he is told to go and tell others this is the great grace that God has had in his life. If we're going to see people set free from the tyranny of all sorts of sin and evil in their lives and the brokenness that often comes with it, it's going to come through the power of the gospel. I look at Paul. The Apostle Paul, so steeped in Judaism and so rooted in the legalism of the Pharisees, and the religious extremism that came to be characterized, those who reacted against Christianity, who sought after believers to imprison them and to destroy them. A crusader against Christianity until he meets Jesus. And Jesus flips his life upside down. He changes them into the greatest apostle of this faith that the world's ever seen. If we're going to see people set free from even religious extremism and legalism, it's going to come through the power of the gospel. I look at history and I look at people like uh, Augustine, arguably one of the most uh, influential figures in the history uh, of the church. But here was a man who was looking for love in all the wrong places and just steeped in life, in orgies and prostitution and drugs and alcohol, everything that you might think today is the plague of our society, he was doing as he sought to fulfill the emptiness in his soul. And that didn't happen, though, until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, his life was changed. 
His soul was satisfied so that now we hear from Him, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in Thee. If people are going to find real hope and life and fullness as they search for love and happiness and significance in all the wrong places, they will only find it through the power of the gospel. I think of John Newton, this slave trader, this cruel and evil man who used his ships to bring people from Africa to sell them into slavery here in the New World most of whom died on his slave ships and he just threw them overboard or emptied the holds of his ships after they made uh, port uh, in the Caribbean. Evil and selfish man until he met Jesus. And Jesus turned his life upside down. Not only saved his soul, but changed him to one of the most loving, compassionate, caring people we have ever seen, who gives us one of the greatest hymns, if not the greatest hymn ever written, Amazing Grace. This is what the power of the gospel does. And this is why I'm before you today and why it's so significant for me even to come back to Tucson. And as yesterday I walked the campus and I went to the place again that I found that silly little pamphlet and went walked over and stood in front of the dorm where I knelt and received Jesus. And it was overwhelming to me to just remember again how Jesus took the life of this ridiculous person looking for significance through sports and everything else and relationships and parties and fun and all this, trying to fill the emptiness and find significance in so many ways. But that didn't happen until I met Jesus. And he saved me and he changed me. And that's why I'm here today some 47 years later. Because Jesus changed my life. And I hope and pray that there's nobody here today, none of you will leave until you yourself, if you haven't already, that you give your life to Jesus. That you come to him confessing your sins and asking him to be your savior, to come into your life, to forgive you and to change you, to make you his own child, to give you the gift of eternal life and to do with you whatever he does with people who give their life to him. And I guarantee you, it'll be wonderful. Come to Jesus. And may all of us always have the wonder. I hope it never gets old for you. That you have the wonder and the joy of your salvation in Christ. And what God has done for us, what Jesus has done for us now with this incredible gospel, this most potent force on the face of the earth, and what he has done with us that dwarfs all these other military, political, money, all these other things, dwarfs and he says, okay, now, here, it's yours. I don't have a plan B. This gospel is going to the neighborhoods around you. It's going into your workplaces. It's going into your schools. It's going into your families through you. You are the body of Christ. You are my people. And I've never done it any differently, but the good news that the gospel always comes through the covenant community of God's people out into the world. And as we worship and rejoice in our God that always extends itself in mission to the world. It becomes an incontainable joy. This is part of how we answer the first question almost that is introduced in this text. The gospel is everything. That's the first point. But then he says, only let your manner of life or only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Now, that has a lot of applications and ramifications. For one thing, it means this is how we love one another, that we love each other with the same love that God has loved us, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, that he loved his enemies into the kingdom and saved us. He gave his life when we certainly did not deserve it. He sought us out. He, he redeemed us. So we are to love one another as he has loved us. But it, it, there's more to it than that when, because of the context this here. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy. Of, I was struggling with really trying to flesh that out and trying to understand exactly what that meant. To conduct my life in a manner worthy of the gospel. I, I understand the part about loving others as he loved us. But then I looked up at verse 21. I thought, well, I think that's kind of the answer there. Those next several verses. When Paul says, for, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Which I shall choose? I can't, I didn't know there was a choice. Apparently there is. Which I shall choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Jesus. That's just, that would be just great. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary. I want my life, he says, to be characterized as long as I draw breath by fruitful service for the one who redeemed me. You see, one of the things you see about Paul, whether you're reading the stories in Acts, whether you're reading the epistles, and especially you get to places like Ephesians 1 and all, you just realize that Paul never got over how excited he was to be saved. It was just a wonder to him that he could just never kind of like wrap his head around uh, almost. And you look at Ephesians, just using that as uh, our example right now, and he just literally breaks every rule of Greek grammar. He would have failed in eighth grade uh, if that were it because of what goes on uh, in, in that in that ch- chapter, actually, because he gets started in verse 3, and the rest of it for the next, like, 14 verses is like a run-on sentence. There, there's no breaks. He just breaks all because he gets carried away. He gets so, I can't believe that he set me aside before the foundations of the world. I can't believe that he justified me by his grace. I can't believe that he has sanctified me by the Holy, and sealed me by the Holy Spirit. And, and just goes on. He just gets so excited about that. He is sold out for Jesus. And he spends his life in, in mission for Jesus. Uh, here and he doesn't, you know, he goes through so much hardship, and, uh, and and you know, he never has a place almost to lay his head anymore because he's all over uh, the Roman world at this point in time. But it's no cost to him; it's no inconvenience to him because it's all about Jesus. It just doesn't matter anymore. And this is what you see. I, I really am convinced that that mission emerges out of and is actually an extension of worship. And I think this is what we saw in that Isaiah text there. Here you got Isaiah saying, you know, ooh, ooh, here am I, send me, you know, send me kind of thing. It's like, guy, you're clueless. You don't even have an idea what he's calling you to yet. But then you learn later on that it's a mission where he's going to be unfruitful. Nobody's going to listen to him. It's going to be a hostile environment. May not come back alive. But I need a volunteer. Ooh, ooh, me, me. Well, how did he get to that point? Well, you got those first few verses where he sees the glory of God in splendid, in spectacular form. And then seeing his own sin, woe is me, I'm a man of undone, a man of unclean lips, this sort of thing, that he experiences the grace of God, the, the, the tongs that touch his lips. And so he has seen the glory of God. He's experienced the grace of God. Where does that lead him? Mission. Here, my Lord, 
send me. And that becomes the posture of God's people. You read through the Psalms and see how often where it talks about praising God, worshiping Him, let's come together, let's all the nations worship Him, let us proclaim His good news, let us tell of His glory among the nations, and this sort of thing. It always extends itself into mission. This is what it means, I think, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, is that we are sold out for Jesus, that we want to be engaged in the mission to which he has called his people, that yes, we worship, that is our highest and best calling, but because we live in a broken, fallen world, our worship extends itself out and says, come join us. Come and experience the life that comes from the one true God. Come and worship and praise him and give him thanks. So mission exists, as John Piper says, because worship doesn't. But it's to call people into a worshiping community. Now this can sound awful radical to some people. You know, sold out for Jesus. I mean, every, some people are like, wow, you're getting kind of carried away yourself there. Um, you know, all things in moderation, you know, uh, whatever. Um, and the fact is, if you have never really understood the gospel, this does sound radical. Uh, it, it sounds like you're getting carried away, but if you, it sounds like foolishness even. It makes no sense. But if you understand the gospel, and if you have experienced the saving and transforming grace of Jesus, it is the inevitable response, the uncontainable response of God's people of here am I, send me. So what does that look like? Well, he goes on to say, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing that you are uh, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That is a really cool statement. And I'll tell you why. See, what we're seeing here is that he wants to see people who are sold out for him and who are loving one another with a radical love. But this gospel not only saves and transforms us as individuals, and not only uh, puts our hearts and souls on fire for Jesus, but it has a unifying and energizing effect to the people of God. It, the gospel brings us together, and the gospel propels us forward in ministry and mission. And this is what he wants to see. All these individuals who have been saved to come together in this worshiping community of Philippi, and to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, as you've probably already heard, Philippi is a fairly unique community uh, here. It is not a Jewish community. I mean, Paul showed up here to preach the gospel and didn't find many Jews. It was not a synagogue. He had to go down by the riverside uh, to find a few. There was just a handful. So it was not a Jewish uh, community. It wasn't even really a Greek community, even though it started out uh, that way. Uh, it was actually a Roman community, and it was actually a Roman military community, and it was actually a Roman military retirement community. <laughs> and this is why that happened. See, years ago, uh, on the plains of Philippi, you had one of the most climactic battles in the history of Mankind. Uh, it was on the plains of Philippi that the army, armies of Anthony and Cleopatra came and fought against the armies of Rome, led by the general Octavian. 
And so the Romans, when they showed up, they took over this little sleepy village of Philippi uh, and made it their headquarters. And they set up shop there, mobilized their troops. That was where the general Octavian was and everything else. And then Cleopatra and Anthony brought in their forces by ship uh, and landed there. And then they had this gigantic battle uh, that the Romans won. And the reason Romans won that because of the military strategy that had been invented years and years before by Alexander the Great that had allowed him to conquer virtually the whole known world. Uh, That military strategy had been taken over by Julius Caesar, who perfected it, uh, and it was used here by Octavian uh, as well. And that is the military strategy known as the Roman phalanx here. And this is something that uh, uh, commentators all say, because of the nature of the people of Philippi here, Paul is intentionally using Roman military references, terminology, and imagery for them to grasp what he's trying to communicate about striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because what was a Roman phalanx? See, Roman phalanx used to be that when you fought a battle in the ancient world, you know, you'd line up all your guys on this side of the valley, and then uh, they, the enemy line up on this, this side of the valley, and you'd run into the middle of the valley, and whoever had the mostest and the biggest and the baddest people tended to win. Uh, kind of thing. And there was sometimes some strategy involved, but not a whole lot. Uh, there was just how many people you could get and overwhelm each other kind of thing. So, but the Romans had invented this Roman phalanx. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, you, you've probably got some idea what I'm talking about here. But anyway, so what would happen is that the Visigoths or the Goths, you guys can be the Visigoths, okay? <laughs> so you guys would line up on this side of, of the valley here, and you guys get to be the Romans. So you, the Romans, you kind of march over to here, but then instead of doing the typical, let's run into the valley and have a big fight, um, you go into this like marching band routine. Okay, so the drums begin to beat and the horns blow and this sort of thing, and you begin marching, crisscrossing with each other. It's really quite a a show uh, that's going on. You guys are kind of watching, wondering what they're smoking, you know, over here a little bit. (laughs) But the Romans are doing the thing, and you see that pretty soon they've marched themselves into these giant boxes uh, of people, like hundreds wide, hundreds deep. Uh, see. And then the horns blow, and they're staggered now all across the valley, and the horns blow again, and these shields come up that are from the, the ground to just above their heads, and then another set of shields that go over top, and they're all custom designed now so that they kind of link up with each other. So what have you got? This like a human tank, all these human tanks all across the valley. And then these long pikes or spears come out from these holes that were carved in each one of the uh, the shields, and then they would just start to march across the valley. Here they come. Chunk, 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 chunk. You guys have been watching the show the whole time, been greatly entertained by the whole thing, but you just do what you've always done, which is, first of all, you start shooting your arrows. You know, across and just hail of uh, of arrows coming, but you're not causing any harm to the Romans whatsoever. They're just bouncing off of their shields, this kind of thing. Romans still aren't shooting their arrows; they're not doing a thing. So then you do uh, what's step two in a typical battle is that you now rush into the valley and rush at the Roman uh, the Romans, and you then start to fight. You're hacking with your swords, uh, your, your your axes, and your spears, and all this kind of stuff. Then the Romans start to shoot their arrows right on top of their own men, but of course their own men aren't getting hurt at all. But everybody else who now has their shields down, they're getting wiped out by all these arrows. Then after the archers have finished their thing, the Romans still are not fighting at all. They're just still marching uh, kind of thing. But then they stop, horns blow, the shields drop, and the Romans come out fighting. 
and you find all of a sudden, all of, wherever you are on the battlefield is a Visigoth, you are now surrounded by Romans. Because your army has now been broken up into all these pieces. You're in between all these Roman phalanxes in and around them. And so no matter where you are, you have Romans coming at you. You're surrounded on the battlefield and you were wiped out battle after battle after battle. Nobody could figure out how to beat the Roman phalanx. So what, what historians would tell us to do, like on the plains of Gaul, which is now France, uh, is that the Gauls would line up on this side of the valley, the Romans would line up on this side of the valley, Romans would go into their marching band routine, and you guys would throw down your weapons and run away. <laughs> because then you'd say, oh, this is what everybody's talking about, can't beat this, I'm out of here. You know, kind of thing. That's how they took over Europe, uh, that, that whole thing. And so, but what was a Roman phalanx all about? It was absolute, it was held together by absolute discipline. And everybody literally had to fight side by side. And if you got disorganized, if you didn't fight in unison, if one phalanx over here got scared because all these hairy people painted in blue, you know, whatever, were, were charging them uh, here, and they kind of got scared and decided to fight on their own, the whole left wing or flank or whatever, the army could have been jeopardized, and the army itself could be jeopardized. So they had to be synchronized. They had to fight together. And when they did, they were unstoppable. Do you see the point that Paul is making? He said, this is, this is the church of Jesus. I want you to see because of what you have experienced in the gospel, the saving, transforming power of the gospel, I now want to see you coming together, oh church in Philippi, oh church here in Tucson or whatever. I want to see you coming together, striving side by side. I want you to synchronize your efforts. I want you to have each other's back, literally. And when you do that, Nothing can stop you. Nothing can stop you. Yeah, you're outnumbered by millions. You live in a secular world that seems to be going literally to hell in a handbasket. That's not the issue. He says, he goes on to say, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opposition. The mission field is not the scary part. The mission field is not the biggest challenge facing the church. Everywhere I go, people will try to convince me that planting churches in their part of the country is the hardest thing to do. Okay. The weather, it's New England and everything is burned out. You know, the, the gospel is no longer relevant and everybody's hardened against it. All right. You go to California, whatever, and everybody's all liberal and, you know, uh, fruits and nuts, whatever. They're just, nobody is going to respond to the gospel. You go to the South and they all think that they're believers and they're not. So you got to get them unsaved before you get them saved. So that's really hard uh, to do, uh, kind of thing. And then you got Mormon Utah, which actually has a point uh, there to make. But the point of the matter is, everywhere you go, it, it's just as challenging. But the challenge isn't the mission field because when the Lord, God Almighty goes before you, you're already a majority. When the Lord God Almighty goes before you, victory is assured. But he says, I want to see you united behind me. I want to see you united around me. That's the effect that the gospel is going to have. And this is one of the reasons we covenant together in, in churches as, as members of a local body, not only for uh, ministry together and worshiping together and accountability and oversight together. We have all those things in mutual support and care for one another, but it's to be united together in mission. 
as well. This is why we belong to presbyteries, because we're other like-minded believers who are going to do the same thing. We're going to find ways to serve together side by side for the faith of the gospel. And we'll do that with others who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ in truth as well. This is the imagery. Paul is speaking in images here and with dynamics that are quite amazing and radical. And so this is what I call you to through the word of God here today is that you all will indeed conduct yourselves in a manner worthy That's quite a statement. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And for that to happen, I pray that there will be in you now and always and increasingly the wonder and the joy of your own salvation. That it will never be old hat. It will never be just something that happened years ago. But that something that shapes your life now as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a child, as a schoolmate, as a worker, whatever it might be, that the gospel of Jesus is continually going deeper into your life, saving, transforming, giving you life, And you are able to say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Hear my Lord, send me. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I cannot, I just don't have words to say thank you for the grace that you've had in my own life. And I pray that Lord, everyone here, will have in their souls the wonder and the joy of their own salvation. And that this will not only energize them to be able to say themselves, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, here am I, Lord, send me, but that, Lord, they will study to find ways to come together in worship and in mission. And that this will character their eyes, their lives to the neighborhoods around them, and in cooperation with other like-minded churches to this city and to this state where there are literally millions who do not know you. Lord, we, like Jesus, can look around at the world around us and see that they are distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Whether they know it or not or will admit it or not, they need Jesus. And he is the only hope for our world. Lord, Let your word speak deeply into our lives today. Let it be living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. And may it bring life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.